0: Hello podcast listeners, hope everyone's having a wonderful Wednesday or whatever day of the week it just happens to be as you lend me your ear. Some of you may know I've been working in the film industry, specifically the documentary world, for the last year. This week I decided to get a history lesson on the film industry in Edmonton, so I went to the top authority in town, Josh Miller. Josh is the first ever CEO of the brand new Edmonton Screen Industries office. The new organization is an updated version of the former Edmonton Film and TV Commission and their mandate is to help lead Edmonton in becoming a national and international center for media production excellence. Josh is a man with an extensive background in the film industry, um, working in both Canada and the US, and he plans to utilize his wealth of experience and knowledge to enable the success of media producers in our fair city of champions. Please enjoy The fantastic stories of Josh Miller. Sitting here today with Josh Miller. Is it Josh or Joshua?
1: Well, Joshua when my mother's mad at me, (laughs) but normally it's Josh.
0: I always wonder with that because my name's Shane. There's no like a long and short version. So I'm always like, I call people by Mike, Michael,
1: Josh, Joshua. Yeah, but you know what? That's a great film name.
0: Joshua Miller no, Shane. Shane. oh yeah I, I saw that once a <laughs> long long time ago my mom tried to show me and I, I think I was too young to get the gist of it but wow,
1: that's a classic
0: yeah so first of all tell me a little bit about this building we're in because I've never seen it or heard of it before today and it's it's quite unique
1: okay well we're at the Prince of Wales Armory here in Edmonton uh, this was built in uh, about a hundred and two years ago um, as a drill hall, <clears throat> obviously for the military, excuse me, <clears throat> and um, you know it was owned obviously by the federal government and then over time it, and of course I've seen early pictures of it, there's nothing around it at the time. Um, it kind of went a little bit downhill and then the feds uh, deeded it over to the city and the city decided to make it a heritage building and uh, what they did was they built right in the middle of it the city of Edmonton archives so there's a building within a building right and then all the office space around the perimeter they gave to sort of nonprofit societies uh, so the Edmonton Arts Council the Edmonton Heritage Council the Edmonton Sports Council all have offices here and there's meeting space and so forth so when my organization which we'll talk about started up I didn't have any footprint so <laughs> the uh, arts council offered me space here and which is great because now I'm, I'm not, I didn't have to find a place and there's lots of infrastructure and it's a really cool building
0: yeah and they've got like all sorts of little rooms with history and and different um, you know historical um, military exhibits and things yeah. like that is it free to go to all those places or yeah donation or
1: well I'm sure they have a donation box but yeah there's a mil- there's the um, RCMP museum down there there's a telephone museum believe it or not there's the archives so it is a public building it does have sort of certain hours where people can come in and uh, we get lots of school groups coming through and then I understand people rent different spaces for weddings or other celebrations so it's uh, it gets a lot of use that's awesome well we're gonna
0: talk about your new organization eventually the Edmonton Screen Industries office but I want to give a little bit of background and context of, of your history just so people kind of know where we end up now today
1: well uh, I'll try to make it <laughs> brief please don't be, a, be
0: as long-winded and and as uh, as detailed as you can
1: all right well I grew up here at Edmonton and um I did lots of different stuff, um, you know, as I was going to school, but uh, I was a musician. I played keyboards, and I played a lot of bands in the mid to late 70s, and um, and um, I thought that was going to be my career, but uh, at a certain point, I realized that I didn't quite have, you know, I'd go see somebody who's really spectacular and go, I don't think I'm ever going to reach that level. Right. So At the start was it lucrative for you or was it was playing it in rock bands yeah. or you know what it wasn't really early on because we all the money we got we put into buying new equipment. Right. But which there's makes sense. A point where you've got Unlike the film industry, there's a point where you've got um, everything you need, and then you can start putting some money away. So instead of having a part-time job in high school as uh, you know doing whatever, I, that that was my be- no, that's how I made you know my beer money.
0: Right. Where was the best place? Or your favorite place to play back in the day?
1: <laughs> you know, they used to have these things called uh, socials at the uh, central administration building at U of A, which is CAB. I think it's still there. Mm-hmm. It's like a big cafeteria during the day, but they'd have these, I think once a month, they'd have these socials, and they'd set up the band right in front of the big staircase. And uh, those were great gigs. Were you in high school when you were doing that? I was in, yeah, I started in junior high, and then all through high school, and then a little bit in, uh, when I was going to U of A as well. So
0: you got to check out the college girls while you are a little bit yeah. younger.
1: Um... And also you know it was a different scene here then because this is pre disco so every hotel had a tavern and they had what they called a cabaret which is where you brought a a date to dance and so there was a lot of bands and we would kind of rotate every three weeks or a month from room to room to room at different hotels so it's really vibrant and then disco came in and The hotel owners found out what I can hire one person instead of six, and that that was really killed the live music scene. Right. But anyway, I did. I started getting really interested. Movies were a, a place to take a date, and you know it's a social thing. But then I started getting really interested in. The artistry and the craft and so i started going to movies by myself i started learning about you know movies that were hard to find here like foreign films and so forth i mean again we're like pre even vhs right so
0: where would you go to to do this research without the internet without the capabilities of sort of worldwide communication
1: yeah, there were you know there was the same theaters now that are art house theaters in town like the Princess and the one well, the Garner would bring in movies and so you you know you'd take uh, that that would help. Uh, also, the, the uh, it was a different cinema owned by different owners, but the downtown, uh, in the downtown Santa City Center Mall, right on the town, top floor. there. Yeah, yeah, they had more you know interesting different kinds of films, niche films. Um, and then I started reading books. Um, I took a course in screenwriting from a guy who was a former cop and had written for like one-hour cop shows in L.A. Interesting. And and just whatever I could lay my hands on. But the big breakthrough for me was um, I was, uh, how old was I, 21 still? My dad's secretary was the sister of a director, Hollywood director by the name of Arthur Hiller. Arthur had grown up in Edmonton, and then gone to Toronto, and then New York, and then L.A., and he became famous for directing a film called Love Story, So, um, and he had done many, many films. So I, my dad said, write him a letter, you know, and I thought, okay, well, <laughs> probably go right into the garbage can, but it didn't. Right. Um, Arthur wrote back and said, as it turns out, we're coming to Calgary to shoot this film called The Silver Streak with Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor this is 1976 so um ice uh you can come down and hang around for the three no weeks way. So, yeah you
0: must have just been losing your mind like that's
1: i went oh i was like i couldn't believe it. i wanted to frame the letter you know <laughs> it's just and i i actually i was in a band at the time i had to ask them for three weeks leave right uh but they were great and so i went down there and i i just uh, by the second day on set i said this is what i want to do it's kind of like you know what you when you get the bug right when who did you who did
0: you kind of key on key in on when you were there on set
1: well i ended up uh, working a lot with the ad's because they decided to make me a pa and gave me a walkie and so i dealt with them and i wrangled extras oh,
0: so you worked yourself into a job
1: i did like the first two days i was standing there i felt like <laughs> an idiot and i started picking up <laughs> light stands and helping them carry and at some point you know like normally in hollywood you could never do that because no. the union stuff but back but we're on location they said I I give the guy walkie so right. um, that's how it started then I came back here and I said okay that's what I want to do I finished off my my arts degree but I switched to everything in fine arts so mm-hmm. I took all theater courses because there were no it wasn't even film studies at the time and then I applied to film schools where I would learn you know which offered courses in directing editing cinematography screenwriting there wasn't any in Canada I mean, there was Ryerson and even Nate, but they were more technical-oriented. Mm-hmm. So I eventually uh, got accepted at a few schools in the U.S., and the one that was the most you know, prestigious was NYU in New York. So I uh, packed my bag, and this would have been in 1977, and got on a plane and went to New York. Had you been to New York before? Once, when I was 15, and I thought, who could live here? You know, like I was right. Yeah, exactly. And here I am going. But, you know, it was half the education was what I learned going to film school and the other half was just living in that city at that time it's yeah I can imagine now. so yeah
0: what's your take what's your take on something like film school specifically or even just school and post-secondary in general like it seems to be an ongoing trend that people are like no just get into the work just yeah. learn by doing what are your feelings there
1: my I've evolved on that I mean what's good about film school is a you make friendships that if you know as you're moving forward in the industry you help each other out give each other a lesson up and you have the room to fail too, you know because um, it's you know you don't have a client and you know right it's so you just you don't have that stress the the thing that's changed is how much it costs and for the amount you pay to go to film school now you could buy pretty pretty up you know pretty much you know state-of-the-art in, in uh, gear right back then of course you couldn't Uh, we when I started it was still film right we there was video just came out like the Sony porta pack was like (laughs) my my last year of school there so um, uh, you kind of to have access to that gear it was either a co-op or school so now when people ask me about it I say you know I guess if you can afford it Mm -hmm. and it doesn't put you into debt that you're paying off the rest of your life uh, sure Um, but you could take that money or not even half that money and buy equipment and join a co-op and start making movies and all that kind of stuff so
0: yeah i mean with with online distribution you can just start doing your own stuff until someone notices and then says hey i'll pay you to
1: do something for me right yeah there's a lot of great examples of that where people have done things and got discovered and you know I think uh, drunk history started that way right <laughs> okay. something like that okay. a few of them so yeah I mean now those kind of opportunities didn't exist back then so you it was uh, it made sense to go to film school and it wasn't that expensive at the time
0: and throughout okay. film school did you know what your niche was gonna be no in the industry
1: no I mean everybody goes in thinking they're gonna be a director right and uh, I quickly found out the thing that I was weakest at was editing I didn't know anything about editing so I threw myself into editing and uh it turns out the American Cinema Editors, they're, they're kind of their guild, uh had a student editing competition where you could I think it was forty bucks and they would send you some professional footage and you'd cut it uh, into a scene and send it back to them. And so I, I and so I went to all my, my, my colleagues in school. I said if you need an editor, I'll edit your movie as well as my own. And, and so sorry to
0: jump in, but just want to clarify. Yeah. You said video had just come out, but were you this editing is film on- edit. so, This is film this is like
1: flatbed steambeck. I mean we even had Moviolas, but none of us would use them because they would eat your film so we would rent there's a uh, I don't know if it's still there but on Ninth Avenue the, there was something called the film center building and we go rent a flatbed there and we'd <laughs> use it like in 24 hours like we'd have eight-hour shifts unbelievable to, so I'd be working over the middle of the night and on some shifts anyway um, I didn't nothing happened the first year but the second year I entered that I actually uh, got nominated I went out to LA to their big dinner and I won um, actually tied with another guy I think he's from Minnesota so we both won and it was really interesting because um, out of that a bunch of editors who were working in Hollywood studios some in television some in feature film invited me and I think the other fella to come and see them where they work amazing and so I'm going to like MGM and you know and I'm like just stars in my eyes thinking oh wow this is incredible um, and a very strange thing happened I I I met with, you know, well, the the editor guy got a phone call, he got busy, so I started talking to his apprentice, and I said, so, you know, what's the process here? Yeah. Well, all that stuff is unionized, and so he said, well, you know, you have to cut sound, because sound was cut on mag stock at the time. You have to do that for, you know, about three or four years. (laughs) And then, then you you do uh, assembling, which was, I think, apprenticing. So then you assemble, and then you could then be an assistant where you're working with beside the editor and you're doing some editing, and then you could be an editor. I said, "Well, how many years go by when you move through all those tiers?" He said, "About ten years," and I went, "Wow, I don't think so. I don't. I mean, I'm sure. You, obviously, if you went the independent route, you could mm-hmm. sit down and start cutting right away." But right. that that blew my mind. So I went back to New York to finish off school, and I thought, I think my highest and best use is as a writer, because that's what I'd always done, right. um, and had you know an aptitude for it. So I applied to the American Film Institute. Uh, at the time, it was called, uh, I think it's called the, uh, I can't remember now, but it was called the Center for Advanced Film Studies, and they had a screenwriting program for a year. So I thought, and that would take me to LA. So I got in there. And that was great. Mm-hmm. I had a great year, great instruction, and um, and then when I got out, that's when I started, you know, looking for work.
0: So when you when you when you went that route, was it just nonstop writing? Was it just writing after writing after writing? Like, if you want to be a writer, you got to write.
1: Yeah, I mean, I had to pay rent too, so I actually found a job. I mean, I did all kinds of production jobs, you know, whatever you can pick up. We've right. all done that. But then I met these guys. Uh, This is a bit of a niche thing, but they invented computerized teleprompting. Okay. So teleprompter is obviously a two-way mirror glass in front of a, a a, 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 well, usually a studio TV camera, but now they're in the field, and uh, somebody who's looking on camera and reading news or sports or whatever read off the screen. Well, up till then, it had been done mechanically, Mm -hmm. literally, with a a scroll... And a <laughs> video camera, yeah, and so like the old uh, overhead projectors, like pretty that much, kind of like pretty much, clear material, yeah, with a little motor, yeah. And uh, no, it wasn't even acetate, it was uh, it was like a roll of paper, and they had a typewriter with letters, you know, through three inch high. And then when they had last minute edits, they go in with a sharpie, <laughs> so it's pretty old technology. Mm-hmm. So these guys had figured out how to make it all computerized, but the best. Uh, you know graphic generator at the time for something like that was uh, the Atari computer right so they actually adapted these Atari computers to be these computer teleprompters and they needed guys that could type that could spell and couldn't do their way around a set so I got work f- from them as a freelance operator and on average maybe working three days a week mm-hmm. Um, and then every other spare second, as he just said, I would be back at my place, my apartment, writing. Did you ever
0: have a trouble with motivation getting started? Like, seems like staring at the blank page is the most um, intimidating thing for most people.
1: Yeah, that is tough. Um, but... Um, I think that everybody has a different process. So for me, when I'm starting to think about um, a story that I'm going to tell, I'll start taking notes on it, and then I'll aggregate all these notes, and then I'll start organizing the notes into, you know, scenes or sequences. And then, you know, before long, I'll have a treatment. And then from there, I'll go to a first draft and add add the dialogue in. So it's kind of like, uh, and I also figured out when I started that if you try to climb the, you know, Mount Everest right away, you're gonna, you know, it's not gonna work out so well. So, you should maybe start with smaller uh, formats. Right. So, uh, when I started writing um, my own stuff, I started doing half hours. And uh, because you need to go through the process and get to the end mm-hmm. and then go back and rewrite and rewrite and we all right. know this it's easier to do that when it's only a uh, 25 or 30 pager as opposed to 112 pages right. right of course you bite off as much as you can chew at the time and, yeah. yeah and I didn't know if anybody would buy those i was pretty sure they wouldn't but um, I knew I needed it for my learning process and then, as it turns out, many years later, one of them did get sold as a, as a pilot, and it led to four seasons of a TV series, which I show ran. So That's unbelievable. you never know. So that was about the
0: time you you moved to Hollywood and you were living there full-time? Yeah,
1: so I'm living there. Um, like I said, I'm working the teleprompting job. I'm taking any kind of film jobs, and then I get my first writing assignment. Um, the first one was on a... Uh, I got by virtue of being Canadian. <laughs> it was just when Americans they were starting to with the specialty networks that didn't have big either subscribers or viewership yet, so they needed inexpensive programming. Mm-hmm. They wanted original programming, but they had to do it on the cheap. So this was a uh, a CBC slash Disney Channel family show called Danger Bay that they shot in Vancouver okay. because of the aquarium right yeah. it was supposed to be exciting stories around the aquarium <laughs> so um, that was my first my first shot and as it turns out it was a half hour show mm-hmm. And then I started getting more assignments. I got um, work on a series that was based on the Friday the 13th films oh, called great. Friday's Curse. Yep. Wrote that, those were one hours, and they're horror. I got, then I got on a staff position on a show that was pretty bad uh, for Dick Clark Productions called Trial by Jury, hosted by Raymond Burr. It was like courtroom testimony type series. Right. Um, so how does that work like you you're a writer but when someone's telling you
0: what to write and maybe disagreeing with what you're putting out how do you how do you balance those two things
1: Um, well of course if they're paying if they're writing a check to you then you have to make them happy Uh, Mm -hmm. but you try to do it in a way that either addresses their note maybe doesn't isn't the change they specifically asked but you drill down and go okay what's behind this note yeah and maybe you come up with a better solution and you throw it at them and if they say hey that does solve it that's good I'm glad you came back so you you know you try to do that but at the end of the day if they say no I want it this way Mm -hmm. then you have to make it work
0: right so you just there's no there's no compromise it's what they say at the end of the day if if they're holding steadfast you've got to just sort of bow to their wishes in that sense
1: yeah I mean like I said you also pick your battles I mean uh, there are things that are really super important and there are things that are minor Mm -hmm. and so you know don't seem to be inflexible by fighting over every comma and you know if there's small things that you you can just go just go with those and then try to fight the bigger battles right
0: and then how does it feel when, when you've written something and you've got a particular scene or an idea or even the whole story in your head and you put it on paper and then all of a sudden it gets to the actor and the director and you see it changing how does that make you feel
1: well, you know, it's different in television and film. In television, especially when you're a showrunner, it doesn't change unless you say it changes. Okay, so the writer has a lot more power. But you'd be silly not to take input from people that are talented, and, and especially in their own field, right? And I was always just thrilled when somebody came up with an idea that was better mm-hmm. you know as to and as, you know some actors would read lines well you'd be in the editing room later and you go how did they think that it was supposed to be read that way you know and the director um, and other times they would take a line and read it in a way that you went oh I didn't think of it that way that's right. way better yeah. so that um, on feature films you know you're kind of you put in your script and then you're not really involved in the process some directors will keep the writer at mm-hmm. their side but most don't because they want to be able to make those changes so Mm -hmm. it may come out the other side looking a little different Mm -hmm. and uh, that's just part of the process
0: but is that is that a little um nerve-wracking knowing that like your reputation as a writer is dependent on the people down the chain from you
1: yeah i mean it's a collaborative kind of medium so you have to hopefully you can work with people that you know they are talented and you trust and they trust you and you trust them it doesn't always work out that way Um, you always have the option to take your name off the script if it turns out to be something that you just wouldn't want to have it yeah so I haven't ever done that but uh, you could if as a last resort
0: so what brought you back to Canada ultimately
1: well, you know, we were down there and uh, we st- I got married and then we started having kids and we went from one to three kids because we had twins. Canadian girl or uh, American girl? Um, my wife is Michelle and I met her in New York. Oh, okay. So American. And yeah. she came out to L.A. and... Um, anyway, uh, we were looking for a bigger house, and we started thinking about whether that was the best place to raise kids, and what the cost would be, and all that stuff. We did our pro and con columns. And, uh, and her family's still back in New York, so it was a possibility of going there or moving up here. And I said, well, I don't know what I do for work. So on just a visit up here, I started kicking tires for jobs, and I got a, a job interview with a fellow named Dr. Allard, who owned the original super channel Mm -hmm. and itv which is now global and uh, he was uh, a very very successful you know surgeon who became a very very successful businessman and um, anyway we met and um, he was very you know kind and he just said I'll I'll let you know this week And, uh, and then I headed back down and then I got a phone call and got hired so what did I get hired as so they had a super channel like most of the broadcasters at the time as a condition of license had to spend money on independent production both uh, investing in the productions but also script and project development so they had somebody who was running that you know uh, who was like a script development officer was the title and she had left to to you know go on to run the Saskatchewan um, film commission and uh, the job was open so that was a job that I I got so once I had the job uh, we packed everybody up and moved back here and that was 1990 and that was for Super Channel that you're working for so when you say they've got a
0: specific amount of money that's that's put aside for certain projects or script development who determines that
1: well you know when everything is changing okay but at the time <laughs> We're gonna um, get to that too. yeah all the all the broadcasters in Canada in order to that you know they're granted a license by the CRTC mm-hmm. uh, because the airwaves are considered a public trust so the CRTC says to them okay what are you going to propose to do um, both as uh, you know what you're broadcasting what are you going to broadcast when and whatever and what are you going to put back into the Canadian system right and uh, this was really Really successful on radio um, because look at the music industry and the huge Canadian stars that came out of Canadian content right. uh, on uh, music so they were trying to do the same thing with television broadcasting so um, all of these broadcasters say well we're going to do this and do that so Super Channel had said uh, we are going to put in a million dollars a year into developing scripts and projects with independent producers so that was from what Canada they, yes Canada. and all across Canada but you know being Western based uh, you know there was a lot of people here in the West that got the benefit from that hmm
0: and so what would you look for as as you know head of development there um, what kind of projects caught your eye
1: you know it's interesting it was pretty eclectic it wasn't like we were a network where something you know so we said okay we're only going to do one hour dramas or you know it was uh, we were it was a pay TV network so movies were you know primarily of interest that might end up on you know that you know, Super Channel would license and have it on their service mm-hmm. but we t- we put money into TV series and uh, we when I say I mean Super Channel and um, documentaries all kinds of different things the idea was to help bring along the industry here so help uh, producers go to the next level hopefully their projects are with writers that are local mm-hmm. and the projects if they would shoot here and for me the my goal always, always was when I was there that we had a project that we developed that then we licensed Mm -hmm. that at the end there's a soundstage which is still there right next to global that was Mm -hmm. owned by ITV at the time right right
0: off Allard Way yeah and Uh, uh, that's Alberta
1: Yeah, it's now called Film Over, and the project would shoot there. So sort of a triple. And um, and it it sounds like that would be a natural thing, but it actually took a while to get to that point. But it happened with a project called The Song Spinner, which was a a really nice kind of fantasy... uh, I won't say it was a TV movie. it was a feature in my mind uh, with Patti Lupone starring in it mm-hmm. and um, we developed it, we licensed it a shot in the studio. So at that point I thought <clears throat> it was kind of like uh, where did, where where from here mm-hmm. And there wasn't really an opportunity to go higher up in that sort of in that uh, job stream so I started thinking about getting back into getting into independent production at that point so it was like five years there
0: yeah and so when did you finally make the jump or what was sort of the last straw before you said all right I'm
1: going out on my own well having got that project done so having it sort of those check boxes done I thought okay now it's time to look around I wasn't I didn't I hadn't been a producer I'd mm-hmm. been a screen freelance screenwriter prior to that so I thought I, I don't know if I want to hang out my own I wonder if I could join a company that's looking for someone to manage their script development. And it turns out there was a company in Saskatchewan called Mind's Eye Mm -hmm. that was a growing concern. And I, you know, we'd done business with them when I was at Super Channel and they were looking for somebody to do that. And I said, and we started talking and I said, I can't move to Saskatchewan. My family's got all our roots here. So we decided to open up an Edmonton office for that and do production in both Saskatchewan and Alberta so that's what we did that's unreal so we're kind
0: of like just bridging getting into contemporary times but I want to take a quick retrospective look back because you said that part of the mandated super channel and other various broadcasters in the west was really to help develop the industry here so you know when you think film cities in Canada you think naturally Vancouver, Toronto and and Calgary kind of recently and I guess back in the 70s as well too just because of their geography but Edmonton today. Typically doesn't come up in, in the international list of film cities and destinations so how where is Edmonton been and where, where did it start kind of in terms of the film industry in terms of things filming here productions originating from here
1: all right well uh, let me get to that in a moment I just okay. want to clarify It wasn't just in the West. It was all across Canada. It wasn't just in Toronto and Montreal and Vancouver. It was in all the cities. And the reason for that was the Broadcast Act actually said that um, the government, uh, through the CRTC, had an obligation to foster and support film and television production across Canada. Right. Okay? So that meant being good canadians that meant everywhere of course and um and so th- those things were set up so that uh, productions could happen in winnipeg they could mm-hmm. happen in calgary all that kind of stuff so that was the idea then um in terms of alberta going back to our history i mean there's there's a rich history um uh, there's a um I have to remember the name of it, but uh, there's a book written by a former film commissioner, Bill Marsden, which has all uh, rich all the rich history uh, mm-hmm. uh, going back. Of course, it started out as uh, documentary films and commercial films mm-hmm. and you know, all that kind of stuff. I would say one of the big break. There was uh, also some genre films that shot. Um, But probably the uh, person who was most, uh, you know, the pioneer in this was uh, Phil Fraser, who unfortunately passed away earlier this year, um, who started doing films here in Edmonton, and he did a film in the 70s called Why Shoot the Teacher? Okay. Which was based on a really well-known book and, a, a, and they cast Bud Court in it and it turned out to be a, a Really really beautiful film. Why did they decide to shoot it here? Phil was from here. He felt like we could do it from here. Dr. Allard, same thing when I right. talk about Super Channel They all felt that we could do world-class production from here mm-hmm. and that while we had some challenges We also had some advantages and then Phil started doing more films based on the success of that and so that that kind of got that going um, and then uh, sort of next wave after that of filmmakers were people like Ann Wheeler and R.V. Limitainen and, and um, um, Mark and Reven Dalgoy who were more in the documentary side but basically they all you know worked together and apart and mm-hmm. did a bunch of films and Ann did a, um, a film called Bye Bye Blues mm-hmm. Uh, which was kind of uh, autobiographical about her mother and set in uh, the 40s mm-hmm. and it was a fantastic film and so that was another another milestone for you know us in terms of and then people like me and margaret Marderosian, and um you know, others came along, and we started doing our thing in uh, in the '90s. Right. So that's kind of the progression. And sort of everybody stood on the shoulders of people before. Um, I think uh, you know, Phil started AMPIA, which is the provincial organization representing producers and others in in the film and TV industry. They started the uh, annual film awards, which are called the Rosies. You mm-hmm. know, um, and uh, <clears throat> and um, what else got started back then? Um, um, anyway, just oh, the our original film agency, which was the Alberta Motion Picture Development Corporation,
0: right? Is that right on 109th and 104 uh, It
1: doesn't exist anymore, right? Uh, it was an agency set up, I think they gave it a budget of four million dollars to foster film and television in Alberta. That was run originally by a fellow named Lord McPherson. Um, no other province had that, okay? We were like way ahead of the curve on that one, mm-hmm. and um. That was around until Ralph Klein's government came in and then they, in the cost-saving environment that was, they closed <laughs> a lot of things down, that was one of them.
0: Right. So other than you know, producers, directors, writers being from Edmonton or, or Alberta in general, what, what incentivizes people to want to shoot here and, and to create projects and homegrown stuff?
1: Are you talking about people who are here or people who are
0: coming here from outside? Well, let's let's discuss both. I mean, I let's th- okay, let's think everyone. Let's think objectively and and being from here aside. So maybe that precludes people from here. But what what attracts people to shoot in Edmonton? What are the advantages?
1: Well, I know for people that, you know, let's talk about the local producers because that one's fairly simple. Unless it's something where you have to travel to China or, you know, it's like that kind of show. Mm-hmm you want to shoot here because you want to go home at night you know you don't want to be in a remote location going back to hotel room all that kind of stuff and also we the community here is very supportive of each other And it's a nice environment and there's uh, it seems to be going from generation to generation that same kind of uh, win for you as a win for me Mm -hmm. so that's a nice environment to work in so there's a lot of incentive for local producers for guest productions or service productions It's a bit more of a challenge Um, I think a lot of them come here uh, if there's something specifically we have here that they can't get somewhere else Mm -hmm. so West Edmonton Mall would would be a good example winter I mean, they can get that elsewhere, but, right. you know, um, a lot of Christmas movies have been shot here, you know, right. partly because of that. Uh, we've had some specific things, like uh, we've had, uh, I think the Kinsman Pool is was uh the size of it was necessary for a film that was it's got had a different title, but uh where there was a plane crash most of the film was shooting in Calgary, but they had to shoot the underwater scene of the plane underwater It was like a bush plane yeah, and they needed a big no way cool. yeah, so they rented to the <laughs> for a week and kicked everybody else out.
0: How did they get the the plane the, the stage in there in the water
1: well they they had a chopped up plane that yeah. they just uh, reassembled uh, upside down. <laughs> (laughs) in the water right and you didn't see the whole thing right uh, on film and and that's how they did it and so I mean so things like that will bring people in because there's specific need Mm -hmm. there are other things that we have like Fort Edmonton is like having a studio backlot if you have a film that needs one of the periods that are represented there same thing with the Ukrainian village to a lesser lesser extent Mm and um, uh, the river valley of course is uh, huge um, and um, so there are specific things that bring people here the, the other thing is um, more on the lines of co-production so an Edmonton producer has gone out has met somebody or different people at different markets they really connect and they decide they want to work together on a project and, um, and they might bring a project to Edmonton because of their relationship. Right. So that's really important, those kind of relationship building. So now with your new gig
0: here at the uh, Screen Industries office, talk about the transition from the former Film Commission to sort of what, what we are now.
1: Well, the Film and TV Commission, which, uh, like you know it, it, it uh first of all it was it was housed or officed under Edmonton economic development mm-hmm. um, and it was kind of the primary task was to it was supporting local filmmakers but they really wanted to bring in those outside projects to Edmonton because they thought you know this is like money that's not here that will come here Oops, right. sorry exactly. so so they it's like an import basically yeah, yeah so it's good for economic it's good for employment all that kind of stuff so the a lot of what the film commissioner did did depending on who they were was go out and beat the bushes to try to get productions to come here mm-hmm. um, most of those productions that would come to Edmonton were more you know i would say more like lower budget type stuff Uh, whether it was movies or TV series. Uh, which is fine because low budget is not is still pretty good mm-hmm. um, and still lots of jobs and good paying jobs. Um, but we were competing with all the other provinces and some states. and so you know it became, came a challenge to they would offer a bit more money or a bit more something and now you've got this sort of race to the bottom. and right. often more often than not, we kind of lose out on that race because we didn't we weren't able to compete in that kind of environment. Mm-hmm. we had sort of here are incentives and that was it. Um, and so um, when the last film commissioner left the city decided to do a rethink on this and, um, and one of the things that and so there were a bunch of working groups that were formed and met there were surveys taken a lot of data and one of the things people thought was that whatever this new agency organization is it shouldn't just be focused on film and TV it should include all screens mm-hmm. so that means including interactive digital media uh, it, and as it turns out, as you probably know, we have a big a big sector here that's kind of under the radar of people that are doing mobile apps, doing AAA games, or doing console games, or doing mobile games. So there's um, a big group, and the, they just got a big leg up actually the province just uh, offered up a a tax credit it's not Wisconsin law yet but it looks like it will be shortly so that's a good thing Um, and so the idea is uh, try to figure out how can we take these companies that are at whatever level they're at whether they're film TV or Mm -hmm. interactive and help lift them up take them to the next level right and um, that's our focus Mm-hmm. So we're, I'm not so much focused on bringing in, you know, the next Christmas movie. Although if they come knocking, right. I'm happy to help and would love to have them come and there there may be some incentives that we can do to have those kinds of projects still come cuz we you know we want our crews to be working mm-hmm. but but i would say a lot of our focus will be on local companies and saying and it has been we have gone out and done a lot of consultations saying what are your challenges what are your gaps mm-hmm. and and what kinds of things do you think we could do for you and of course i've got a list a very long list, which we can't do everything. But um, we're sit- we went through a process where we prioritized it down to about four or five things mm-hmm. uh, that are kind of cut across all of those kind of really different screen industries where they they could use support.
0: Right. So, what are examples of those types of things that you can do to support these these individuals or these entrepreneurs or companies?
1: Well, IP, you know, acquisition and development. So, whatever it is, if it's a, a you know, a I was just at a game camp the other night where they had gotten the rights to the Trailer Park Boys, Mm -hmm. and they made a mobile game off that. Oh, cool. So could we help out other producers or other companies getting IP that's branded like that? Mm -hmm. Because you kind of have a running start when you hit the market with something that has brand awareness Mm -hmm. and already has, in that case, a pretty pretty uh loyal fan base it's unbelievable yeah. like I, i've met people down in like southern u.s
0: that like trailer park boys They're like oh are you you, are you near where that shot in canada i'm like well no i'm on the other side of the country and it's a big country but it's amazing how that's just like gotten this cult following and, and it expands past just
1: canadian people still goes on yeah so so that's a good example of how maybe we, you know that's it's not cheap to, to have to, to try to acquire rights to a, 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 an established brand like mm-hmm. that. So, um, and that, that applies to not just, it, it applies to anything, you know, it could apply to like a successful cookbook right. chain, you know, it's like any kind of IP which has a brand. We, so we can help out, we hope we could help out with that and then we'd get paid back if, if and when the projects went forward. Um, we also think there's a opportunity to Create an incentive which will, for lack of a better word, up the marquee on people's projects. Mm-hmm. So, for example, I mean, um, I mean, the, the most obvious examples are when you're doing a feature film, you want to get a big name star, mm-hmm. um, but you can only have so much money. Well, can we help out getting a better star? You know, a bigger name mm-hmm. for the project, so that it's more promotable when it's finished. And right and so that's uh something we think about but it's not just restricted to feature films like for instance um you remember that uh there was a movie about penguins was it called the, the, march, the, of march, the march of the penguins yeah when that film came out originally got finished it didn't have morgan freeman voicing over right <laughs> it was a great film but nobody would have gone to see it so the distributor put up a bunch of money for morgan freeman and now right. they had morgan freeman and they, everyone went to see that movie Yeah. so can we help out with documentaries by helping them get marquee voices mm-hmm. for, for voiceover? over same with video games that have story elements where they have you know um, characters that talk mm-hmm. so there's a lot of opportunity there to, to up the commercial value of these projects mm-hmm. with the, you know with those elements so um, where it's difficult maybe to do that on the budgets that they have then other things around that, we think we can help with um, uh, costs around marketing and networking where people have to go to conferences or markets or meet people in their home office, mm-hmm. whether they're going to sell a product that they've finished or whether they have a pitch and they're going to get a broadcaster or an investor mm-hmm. and and have them not just go once but go every year for the next five years so right. they become like part of the. Group, part of the in crowd. If it's you like will.
0: any other industry, right? The more this people is, you know, the people want to work with the people that they're familiar yeah, with, right? It's
1: very, very much that way, and that's how you get films to come back to Edmonton. Is these people have gone out and built those relationships, right? Whether they go to China or wherever. Um, market intelligence, knowing what the person you're selling to wants mm-hmm. and is looking for or needs and hopefully you have it. Getting that information ahead of time, you know, I've, that, those are the easiest sales I ever made as a producer when I knew what that person wanted and I had I had it. Right. So uh, there are sites and there are research companies where you can get reports that give you up-to-date, stuff like that. And the last thing that I hear, I think we can help out is with what I call corporate branding, mm-hmm. which is simply this. It's simply figuring out what it is that you do And becoming the place for people to go to get that so instead of always your sales efforts going out saying here's my projects please invest please license please publish Mm -hmm. suddenly you're getting phone calls from people going we hear you're the guys that do this right and we need that let's talk right so there might be one expert in you know male driven
0: narratives in a documentary or you know different aspects like that
1: Yeah, and I do have examples where that's happened. You know, Mm -hmm. where a company here is uh, focused on what we call fly-on-the-wall reality shows. Mm -hmm. And uh, they got a phone call from a broadcaster one year saying, "Uh, we need something in this area. Mm -hmm. Can you put together a proposal for us and we'll license it? Because we know that's what you guys do really well.
0: How many people are involved in the, the Screen Industries office right now, I mean what you just mentioned, all those things, it's a very comprehensive approach and it seems like there's a lot of people trying to get their projects off the ground, yep. so who do you have supporting you right now?
1: Well, I have a great uh, board um, that was put in place b- before I came on the scene uh, that was um, the city of Edmonton recruited, and uh, this one of the things uh, again we're different from before. I, the film commission was under economic development, Edmonton economic development. We're kind of more like the Edmonton Arts Council, which was set up as an arms-length nonprofit. The city funds its operating, and it manages all the arts grants for mm-hmm. all the various things and other things related to the city. And so that model really is working really well for the city and for for. You know, people that enjoy the arts and for artists. So they said, let's do the same thing with our, the Edmonton Screen Industries office. So it's set up as a nonprofit society. We've got some operating funding from the city, and we have a board that none of which are in the industry themselves. They're like, Lions of industry and different areas in Edmonton and uh, They're volunteering because they think there's a lot of potential in in the sector, so I get a lot of support from them Uh, And then I have here I sub lending an office from the Edmonton Arts Council, so I get a lot of um, uh, logistical support here, and I have a a part-time bookkeeper that's it <laughs> and uh, so you're feeling a lot of
0: calls emails meetings on your own
1: well and having to figure out <clears throat> with the board we figure out our priorities <clears throat> so what can we do now what can mm-hmm. we do next month what can we do next year um, so one of our uh, things we have to do this year is we have to raise some funds mm-hmm. so we are putting in a pr- putting a proposal together that will go into the city for operating uh to extend our operating uh uh, funding and uh but the other is that there's a film fund Mm -hmm. this film fund was set up by uh, the previous mayor um it was called the edmonton film fund uh originally it was five million dollars now there's four million there and it's been sitting there waiting for us to get ourselves organized to come back and make a proposal to them as to how we would administer it. Right. So that goes in on May 1st. Interesting. So you
0: propose whether you want to, you know, divvy that up into $100,000 chunks or you do a couple of big ones, a couple of smaller ones. And then also, what are, you looking for, what are they looking for in terms of... And this is sort of a broader question, but how do you sort of walk the line between, you know, tried, tested, intrude um, versus taking a chance on content or or a certain platform for content?
1: Well, that's a good question. Um, Well, I don't know yet in terms of what part of that would be allocated to what program, but I've sort of given you the five areas. So now we, if we were granted administration over those funds and, and also the operating funds, now we'd sit down and figure out what do these programs look like? How do people apply? And right. What are the requirements? How do we choose things? <clears throat> That's a good one. Because the, the Canadian way and the arts um, society way would be to convene juries. Mm-hmm. I don't think so. I don't think that's a good approach for what we're trying to do. I think what we do is we know what we are looking for. We communicate that clearly, and then people apply, and we have consultants that review the applications and then come to me with recommendations. Mm -hmm. And so basically we're going on what those people know and what I know to judge what we think uh, has merit. Mm -hmm. And so it'll be up to the people applying to convince us. And, um, you know, um, I think it doesn't preclude us taking chances on things if we think it's uh, innovative. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, we'll be looking for what are the commercial elements of this that will help you to market it down the road. And is one of the things you're looking for us to help you support, increase its commercial potential, right. in which case we'd be interested.
0: Right. So with the sort of shift in terms of like the, the tr- more traditional route of, of film to now more a lot more digital platforms, distribution, there's almost, uh, you know, the lines between the different platforms are sort of becoming more blurred. Is that, is that an advantage to producers or, or does it almost open up the constraints, making it more confounding and, and confusing for young producers?
1: I think it makes it confounding confusing for old producers like me. <laughs> young producers seem to have no problem. Mm-hmm. Um, I look at it this way. You know, think about IP as the concept, or, you know, the underlying idea, and think of what you make from that as a media product. Well, uh, you could make let's take the cookbook example. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you have a successful line of cookbooks. you as a producer get the rights. Maybe the first thing you do is an app based on the, the, those cookbooks, but also their brand, and um, and the app is successful, S- and so successful that you make, you know, version two, version three, version four, all with all new recipes, right. and you take some of the revenue that's coming in for you to do some marketing, social media campaign, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, Now you've got a story because you've got some metrics as to how many people, first of all, have bought these cookbooks either as hard copy or eBooks, but also how many have bought your app Mm -hmm. and how many have rebought it, bought the new versions. Now you go to a broadcaster, like the cooking channel or whatever, Mm -hmm. and you say, here's some data. You know, if we did a TV show based on this and we figure out what that looks like, it wouldn't be the same as the app, but it would have the same branding. Mm Um, and you get a yes so let's say you start making a television show and let's say it's really successful and you get a bunch of seasons well once you get above three seasons then you can start selling it all over the world because buyers from other countries are interested in um, multi-season shows because if they air it and it's successful they don't want to just have one season so if you can get up to five seasons it's wonderful Mm -hmm. So, and these cookbooks, let's say, have sold internationally, so there's brand awareness already out there for the cookbooks. Right. So now you've got a TV show, you're selling it all over, it's airing on your cooking channel in Canada, and now you have somebody from a country that um, is not, English is not their language saying, we really like this concept, but we want to do our own version of it. Right. You know, like mm-hmm. Canadian Isle is like American Isle, right? Mm-hmm. Well now you sell them the format rights which I call mailbox money because you have <laughs> no effort is right. required here except to franchise franchise. Mm-hmm. okay let's say it does really well in all of those venues mm-hmm. so well you get approached by a company that makes frozen food and say we would like to put out a line of frozen food with this brand on it now because there's so much awareness around it and mm-hmm. so much goodwill to that brand well, you don't make frozen food and, you know, this isn't a screen media product. It's an ancillary product. It'd right. be like selling plush toys from a Disney movie. Right. All you do is you take a royalty for that and you negotiate a brand management role so they can't make shoddy frozen foods mm-hmm. because your brand is attached to that. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it's cookware. I mean, I'm talking about something that, of course, is a home run. Not right. all of them are going to have that. But from this one IP... Now you have all of this stuff. So if you ask me if it's confusing, well, mm-hmm. it's complicated. It's a lot more work, mm-hmm. but there's a lot more opportunity for, for revenue. And then you take that revenue back here to Edmonton if yeah. you're based here. You start hiring more people. Mm-hmm. You rent a bigger office. And you start developing more IP. And if you're smart, you'll do more in that area because now you have corporate branding. Right. That you're, you're the you're the guy. You're the you're cooking the guy. You're the people. cooking guy. So now you might do something just on desserts Mm -hmm. (laughs) I know this sounds crazy are you making this up as you go what's your
0: cookbook called classic cooking classic cooking with Josh Miller Um, uh,
1: so it's not as sexy as making a feature film with big huge stars Mm -hmm. which doesn't mean we can't also support that if that's something that comes along uh, but it really is uh, just an interesting world right now, where there's all of this opportunity. And I think, uh, you know, it used to be where, as a filmmaker, you were a bit of an island, and you could make your movie, and then other pe- or TV show, and then other people would do all the end stuff. Right. Now you have to do it from cradle to grave, but right. but the money comes back to you. Mm-hmm.
0: So what most excites you about uh, your new role coming up in the near future and the the future of this industry and the possibilities?
1: Well, I like two two things right away. First of all, I like creating things, whether it's a script or a new organization. And this has been like a a startup. So it's been really interesting doing that. Secondly, on every project that I do, I want to learn something. And I am learning a ton of stuff. Uh, and I'm uh, meeting a ton of people as well locally here. And um, that just gets you out of bed every day because it's something new all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, our plan, which we're still developing, and we're, we've are we hired a research company to develop a baseline of metrics for us so that we can report to the city and also report to our stakeholders Uh what the growth is if there is growth Mm -hmm. and what you know what are the metrics that show that but um yeah i would love to see us five years from now have some more you know like we have a bioware maybe we have two more biowares um so really
0: kind of like impactful concepts or organizations that we can really be proud of as edmontonians or albertans or canadians if it gets to that scope right yeah Yeah.
1: and we don't have to go somewhere else to work Mm Like there's enough work here whether you're on the film crew or you're a programmer mm-hmm. that you come out of NAID or you come out of whatever school you come out of and you and there's opportunity right here. Mm-hmm. You don't have to go to Montreal. You don't have to go to Vancouver. Mm-hmm. That will be really important. And then ultimately, I guess, down the road, it would be great to have a hub, you know. So a hub where all the screen industries are are there, there's sound stages, there's fiber, there's everything that you want, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of cross-fertilization between the companies and work that they do. Right. That's, uh, that would be a nice thing to have happen, you know, down the road. So selfish question here, what common mistakes do you see,
0: uh, you know, young producers or, or filmmakers or anyone getting into this world make commonly?
1: Uh, you mean all the mistakes I've made? <laughs> yeah, uh, in the past, or last week, or yesterday, or whatever mistakes. Well, I would say this, um, and these are really things that I went through. I I was a shiny object guy, um, and uh, and being in Edmonton, you couldn't sort of. J- j- I thought you couldn't specialize in in one particular area. So my, if you look back at the stuff that my company made, it's very eclectic. We never branded ourselves, Mm -hmm. except maybe as quality, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So I would say figure out one or two areas that you think you could focus on. Uh, You bring something to it, you know something about it, and you're passionate about it. And become branded for those things, um, and then secondly, um, the other thing that producers do because it's just how it goes is you kind of live project to project, right? Mm-hmm. Think from the earliest possible time about your company and how can you make it sustainable and how can you make it grow and and not, you know, have gaps where you're waiting for one project to get going and you you know your cash flow is being drained. So get business company, you know, um, consulting experience come in and, at every stage and, mm-hmm. and help you and take bring your company along. This is really, you know, it's great to have a win to get a project done. Right. But so many companies it's very difficult then I mean, they do start growing and they don't really have a plan and it, it's very difficult, especially if they can't find financing for their company. Right. You yeah. can't rest on your laurels.
0: You gotta always be thinking of the next thing and the next thing, right?
1: For sure, but you gotta be thinking about what thing you're thinking about. It can't just be the that next film or that next TV show it has to be in the context of a business plan for your company right do you still get to write much well I took the last two years off and I I did a bunch of writing which was fun Mm -hmm. Um, and and, but now I don't have the time but, uh, you know, like, I'll return to it in the future. I always have that in my back pocket.
0: Yeah. Awesome, Josh. I really appreciate your time. Uh, where can anyone who's listening to this who wants to get in contact with you find you?
1: Uh, the best thing is to just send me an email to jmiller at edmontonscreen.com.
0: Perfect. And then we'll take it from there. Okay. Well, thanks so much again for the time. Really appreciate it. And uh, we'll see you again in the future. Okay. Thanks, Shane. Thank you. City of Champion listeners, as always, very appreciative of your time and attention. I hope you found this episode entertaining and informative, just like I did. See you next week.